Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. I remember being in London in the summer of 2001. I made my usual pilgrimage up to the original Rough Trades record store on Talbot Street off Portobello Road in Notting Hill. I was pretty bummed out with music at the time, so I was hoping for some inspiration. The mainstream was awash in pop music. Spice Girls, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, NSYNC. And alt-rock had kind of lost its way after grunge burned out. The big acts were searching for direction. There were far too many one-hit wonders. And new metal, the biggest thing at the time, was very, very polarizing. You were either really into it or you hated it. It also seemed that this new genre dubbed electronica was siphoning off a lot of rock fans. Music made the old school way, with guitars, bass, drums, and vocals, seemed old-fashioned, out of date, and basically played out. But that couldn't be true, could it? In the past, every time rock was declared dead, someone or something came along and breathed new life into everything, usually with a back-to-basics approach. I told this story to Nigel, the guy behind the desk at this tiny shop. Give me something that is exciting, new, and fresh, I said. Give me hope. So Nigel reached under the counter and pulled out a CD single. Here, mate, he said. This should cure all of your ills. It was a song from The Strokes. Turns out he was right. The Strokes were one of the very, very first new bands behind the indie rock revival that began at the very tail end of the 1990s and then blew up over the next couple of years. So, uh, nice one, Nigel. But why The Strokes? Where did they come from? And why was this guy in London telling me about a band from New York? This requires some explanation. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The Strokes, from the new Abnormal album, with the song called Bad Decisions. And before you ask, yes, they know it sounds like Generation X is dancing with myself. 
which is why both Billy Idol and Tony James have songwriting credits on that particular song. We'll revisit that topic of melodic appropriation a little bit later on. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is going to give us a chance to get caught up with The Strokes. This may give you a bit of a heart attack, but The Strokes have been around since 1998. Same five guys, too. They've been critical darlings from the beginning, but what do we really know about them? We've heard bits and pieces, but it's reasonably tough to find out everything in one place. So let's fix that, starting at the very beginning. We'll begin with Julian Casablancas, the lead singer and chief songwriter for the band. He learned to write songs by figuring out Nirvana riffs. He's the son of John Casablancas, the founder of the famous Elite Model Management Agency, the home to such fashion stars as Cindy Crawford and Stephanie Seymour and Giselle Bündchen. Oh, and Linda Evangelista and Naomi Campbell and Kendall Jenner and Paulina Poritzkova and Claudia Schiffer and Heidi Klum and on and on and on. So imagine being a young guy and growing up in that kind of environment, which is why mom got custody in the divorce and why he rebelled, saying that he wanted to be closer to his father. I can sort of understand that. This led to a teenage drinking problem, which saw him enter rehab while he was still in high school. Mum was a former Miss Denmark who pried Julian away from his Phil Collins records and got him into bands like The Doors. However, the connection to the modeling agency would become very important when the Strokes finally got it together. Julian would make sure that models from Dad's place would show up to gigs. Think that helped with attendance? Julian met future Strokes bass player Nikolai Frechur when they were both just six. Both of them were attending a prestigious French school in New York City. When he was 13, Julian was sent to the Institut Le Rosé, which has a reputation of being the most expensive private boarding school on the planet. Put it this way, the school is located in a 14th century chateau and has a satellite campus at a ski resort in Gastad. Don't even think of applying unless your parents could afford annual tuition of around 200,000 U.S. dollars. And that's before extras. It was at that school that Julian met Albert Hammond Jr., the son of successful songwriter Albert Hammond Sr. He wrote this song. Seems it never rains in Dad also wrote songs for Celine Dion, Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Willie Nelson, Chicago, The Carpenters, and a ton of others. And he also has a writing credit on Radiohead's Creep, after a court case determined that Creep sounded a little too much like The Air That I Breathe, a song that he wrote for the Hollies back in the 1970s, but I digress. Albert was the business guy of the band in the early days. He was the guy who booked gigs and pitched record companies, usually under the pseudonym Paul Spencer, which was the name he used on his old fake ID. And for fun, he made it his habit to post all the rejection letters he got on the wall. This is also important. He had a credit card for which dad paid the bill. And that's how the band kept itself in guitar strings, cables, drumsticks, and rehearsal PA. Guitarist Nicholas Valenci was another kid from the Upper East Side of New York who'd spent his summers on his grandfather's estate in Bordeaux, and drummer Fabrizio Moretti was born in Rio de Janeiro. His dad was a nuclear engineer who relocated the family to New York. By 1997, Julian and Nick were attending a college prep school called the Dwight School. Again, not cheap. That's where they met Fabrizio and started a band. 
Albert moved from Switzerland to New York to attend film school, hooked up with Julian, became roommates, and also joined the band. And then shortly after that, Nikolai was back in Julian's orbit and became the group's bass player. It should be noted that out of all the members, Nikolai was the only one who grew up poor. His dad was a security guard at Macy's, and all the family could afford was a two-room apartment for five people. For music, the end of the 90s wasn't like the middle 70s in New York. Back in the old days, a ton of bands were coming out of the original punk scene. The late 90s? Well, not so much. Hip-hop, yes, but rock, no. There were a few places to play, and the sense amongst music fans was that the New York rock scene was dead. The best anyone could do was play private parties, often at warehouses and places in Brooklyn where even the cabs wouldn't go. But the Strokes were willing to work through all this. Along with Albert's dad's credit card, they also had part-time jobs. Julian was a bartender at Max's Kansas City, one of the most famous venues in New York. Nikolai had a gig at a video store. Fab made smoothies for a living, and even Albert worked. He had a job at Kim's Video, one of New York's hippest video stores. After rehearsing a lot for almost two years, the band played their first gig under the name The Strokes on September 14, 1999, at a New York venue called The Spiral. There's no special story behind the name, The Strokes. It's just one that everybody hated the least. Julian blurted it out one day at rehearsal, and everybody said, okay, that's it, we'll go with that name. It may be worth mentioning now that at one of those early shows, The Strokes opened for a band called Girl Harbor. This was at a venue called Don Hills. Nick was caught having sex backstage down in the basement and was photographed. Girl Harbor then used the photo for a flyer for the next Strokes gig with the line, this is what happened at our last show. The lineup, which has never changed, was pretty special. We had five guys with five distinct personalities and five distinct images. This individuality was so strong that Spin Magazine would eventually give each guy their own cover. As I read somewhere, boyfriends don't like the strokes, intimating that, uh, well, they would lose their girlfriends. These small venue gigs continued until they were able to work up to the Mercury Lounge, a famous place in the Lower East Side. It's not big, capacity is about 250, but it's been a place to go for rock and roll in New York City. They had a set of a little more than a dozen songs, which so impressed the booker at the Mercury Lounge that he quit and became their manager. This resulted in a three-track demo recorded in 2000, and it was unusually tight for such a young group. That's because the Strokes insisted on rehearsing to a click track. You do that enough, and your timing becomes impeccable. Here's the original version of what would become a major hit for them. The first place anyone found that version of Last Night was an MP3 given away as a free download by The NME, one of the British weekly music papers. That primed the pump in just the right way. The subsequent EP, the three-track The Modern Age, not only sold respectably well, but also sparked a bidding war amongst record labels. In fact, it was one of the most fierce bidding wars in a very long time. This was around the time I met with Nigel at the Rough Trade store in Notting Hill, and he recommended that I buy a copy of that first EP, which I did. The winner in the bidding war was UK's Rough Trade Records, even though they'd stopped being a label at the time and were only managing bands. Company head Jeff Travis liked the Strokes so much that he resurrected the label and then sent them off into the recording studio in March of 2001 to record a full album. 
They also landed a deal with RCA, largely because they were okay with the Strokes' desire to make a music video. All the songs on the EP were re-recorded, and the rest were taken from the band's live set. The first producer on the project was Gil Norton, known for his work with the Pixies. That should have worked, but it didn't, with the band saying that the result sounded too pretentious. Not sure what that means, but okay. So Gil Norton was jettisoned for a guy named Gordon Raphael, who they met at a gig six months earlier. The whole project took about six weeks in a crappy studio that nevertheless had its charms, even though the studio was almost evicted from its space during the sessions. A guitar teacher named J.P. Bowerstock was also brought in to help with guitar lessons, something that had a big effect on the solos on the album. Most of the tracks were recorded once to keep things raw as possible. You can't do that unless you're really well rehearsed. But this didn't sit well with RCA, the Strokes' U.S. label. They thought everything sounded unprofessional. And, well, if we're honest, it kind of was. The whole thing was recorded using just three microphones to get that gritty, raw sound. Julian sang his vocals through a tiny practice amp to get that same lo-fi effect. It wasn't until the band played tapes of the songs on an old boombox that the record rep got it and left everybody alone. The final result was called Is This It? No question mark because it was felt that it looked wrong. Australia got the album first in July 2001, followed by the UK in August and North America in October. And there are two covers. The first features the photographer's naked girlfriend fresh out of the shower. The black glove was an old prop. The effect was, well, spinal tapish. But then Julian had another idea. He found an image showing subatomic particles from a physics experiment at the big European bubble chamber at CERN in Switzerland and insisted on that being the cover. Not a bad idea, given that the label was worried about the shot of the naked woman and that original cover getting displayed in stores, especially in the puritanical U.S. So anything released in July and August of 2001 had the original, and everything after that had the second cover. All the songs from the Modern Age EP were re-recorded, and this was the lead single. Hard to explain, the first single from Is This It, the Strokes' debut record. The second single was a new version of Last Night, and the third was Someday. And by the time that third track was released, the Strokes were critical darlings almost everywhere. People were talking about a garage rock revival and the return of indie rock and a new look and an old sound. They even had Slash, Duff McKagan, and Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver appear in their video. So, you know... Not bad. The Strokes with Someday, the third single from their first album. There was one other change for the U.S. release besides swapping out the cover. The album featured a track called New York City Cops, but October 2001 was too close to 9-11 to release a song critical of any first responders, so American copies feature another track called When It Started. Again, probably wise. In the end, Is This It sold more than 4 million copies worldwide, which was a pretty good start. More of the Stroke story coming up. 
The second Strokes album started with producer Nigel Godrich, Radiohead's favorite guy, but that didn't work out, so they went back to Gordon Raphael. The result was called Room on Fire and came out in October of 2003. The first single was called 1251, which reminded people of a Sonic Youth song called Bull in the Heather, a resemblance that was completely unintentional. And where did Nick get that weird guitar tone? An accident in the studio. And it's now something of a signature sound of many stroke songs. But here's its first appearance. Room on Fire didn't do as well commercially as Is This It, but it was certainly a hit with the critics. By this time, and we're talking late 2003, early 2004, the Strokes were firmly part of the indie rock revival that also included the White Stripes, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, the Vines, the Hives, and this new band called Arcade Fire. If you were around back then, you might remember cries of Rock is Back after playing second fiddle to boy bands and other pop stars. Given the success of the first two Strokes album, it's really hard to underplay the effect they had on this revival. The next album followed about two years later and was called First Impressions of Earth. There were producer issues with this one too, but this time it was Gordon Raphael who tapped out in favor of David Kahn, a guy who worked with Paul McCartney. This was the difficult third album. Not a lot of love from the critics. Even fans were lukewarm on it. Sales were anemic, despite radio play from three singles. And there was another plagiarism accusation. The first single from First Impressions of Earth was Juicebox. The Strokes had to give Henry Mancini, the famous American composer, a songwriting credit because this sounded a little too much like the theme from an American TV series from the 50s called Peter Gunn. But does it? You be the judge. Here's Henry Mancini from 1959. And here's Juicebox from The Strokes. Everybody sees me, but it's not that easy. Standing in the light field, standing in the light field. Waiting for some action, waiting for some action. Over by, won't you come over here? I should point out that Henry Mancini himself did not benefit from the songwriting credit on that song because he died about 10 years before it came out. The relatively weak performance of First Impression of Earth prompted a rethink that lasted three years. The tour for that album ended in 2007, and there would be no new Strokes music until 2010, a gap of five years between albums. When they did start working on new songs, it was a very slow process. Two years of writing, demoing, and recording. And there were more producer problems. Two guys would rotate in and out, before the band decided to take care of things themselves. There were other problems, too. Julian Casablancas was increasingly absent, letting everybody work separately in the studio and only sending vague instructions and suggestions via email. Not very helpful. But in his defense, he wanted the other four guys to have a shot at songwriting because up until now, Julian had written about 95% of the material. That change required everyone to adapt and it altered all kinds of dynamics within the strokes, as well as with their sound. Another thing, Albert Hammond Jr. 
had developed a nasty drug problem from a breakup and required time in rehab. He was into heroin, cocaine, ketamine. Dude was a mess. 18 songs were demoed in the beginning, and 17 were thrown out or completely reworked. Finally, on February 9th, 2011, there was a sign that things were okay. An album called Angles was almost ready, and this was the first single, Undercover of Darkness. Overall, the fourth album was warmly received. The big phrases were a return to form and back to basics. And if you look at the Strokes' chart success, Undercover of Darkness was the third best performer in the band's career. Fans wouldn't have to wait long for the next album, and we'll pick it up there. The fifth Strokes album was designed as another collaborative effect with every member contributing something to the songwriting. And when the record was ready in March of 2013, the band imposed a full-on media blackout. No interviews, no gigs, no tours, no photo shoots, no videos. They called the record Come Down Machine. Reviews were good, fortunate given the media blackout, but the album wasn't exactly a sales monster. But then again, the Strokes were like so many other bands by this time. They were in a forced transition from the days of selling pieces of plastic to the era of streaming. Counting the number of physical copies sold was less important. The most important thing was that the fans dug it. And the first single was One Way Trigger. There's not much more to say about the Come Down Machine album because the Strokes didn't do anything for it. No promotional work whatsoever. So we might as well move on to the next release, which was a four-track EP entitled Future, Present, Past. This one did get promoted. There was an Instagram campaign. Julian had a satellite radio show where he talked about it. There were some shows and even a pop-up shop in New York City for a while. It came out digitally and on two colors of vinyl, and it was the first Strokes release on a label called Cult, which is Julian's imprint. And from that, we have this. It's called Drag Queen. Before we get to the sixth Strokes album, let's go through some random information about the band. In the fall of 2015, Julian filed for a patent for a folding electric bicycle. No pedals. Richard Priest, the Strokes tour manager, and video director Warren Fu are listed as co-inventors. Albert Hammond Jr. got big into fashion. He even has his own line of men's suits and ties. He really likes designing ties. Fabio Moretti works with sculpture and performance art. He was the one with Drew Barrymore for years, but that ended in 2007. And everybody in the band has released solo records. Julian has one under his own name and two with a band he called The Voids. Nikolai had a band called Nickel Eye and another called Summer Moon, which featured Jane's addiction drummer Stephen Perkins. He also works with his brother in a music meets performance art painting project. And Nick has a side project called CRX, which has two albums. And then we have Albert Hammer Jr., who released four solo records and an EP. And finally, Fabrizio has worked in bands called Little Joy, Megapus, and Machine Gum, as well as helping out or sitting in with other artists. 
The sixth Strokes record was released on April 10th, 2020, right as the COVID situation was exploding. And given everything that was happening in the world, the title was perfect, The New Abnormal. This record was made with producer Rick Rubin in both California and Hawaii, and the change of producer and venue was exactly what the band needed. Great reviews and a Grammy Award for Best Rock Album. Back at the beginning, we heard Bad Decisions, the first single from that record. Billy Idol and Tony James of Generation X got songwriting credits because of the melodic similarities to the song Dancing With Myself. And that's not the only sharing the Strokes did on this record. There's another song on here called Eternal Sunday, which sounded a little too much like The Ghost in You from The Psychedelic Furs, which is why Richard and Tom Butler of The Furs get a songwriting credit on that. Here's another single from the album. It's called At The Door. And this is cool. Part of the songwriting credit went to The Strokes' guitar tech. How many times do you see a roadie getting credit? If it wasn't for the Strokes, it's possible that the indie rock, garage rock revival that took hold in New York City in the early 2000s wouldn't have grown the way it did. They were the first band from that era that really grabbed the attention of anyone outside the city. They opened the door for those who followed. And we got to go back to that first album, Is This It? It turned out to be a very big influence on so many bands that followed. For example, it was a very big record for a bunch of brothers from Nashville. The guys in Kings of Leon learned to play by aping that record. A young band from Las Vegas called The Killers heard the album, got depressed, and then threw out everything that they were doing and started from scratch. The only song that survived the purge was Mr. Brightside. And when you think about how that song is constructed and recorded, you can actually hear bits of strokes within it. Other bands crediting the strokes as an influence include Arctic Monkeys, Franz Ferdinand, and LCD Sound System. So, if we want to talk about one of the most important bands to emerge in the aughts, it's definitely the Strokes. This show and hundreds of others are available as podcasts. They're available for free on all podcast platforms. Grab as many as you want. We can also connect through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And there's my website with more music news and information, a journal of musical things.com. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 